Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. My client, Wilfred Benitez, was a three-time world champion uh, managed by Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, who also managed other fighters, including a very young 15-year-old amateur named Mike Tyson. Jimmy was a world-class athlete, and um, his partner, Bill Caton, was a prominent advertising man, and together they started a business called The Big Fights, Inc., which owned, in the 1980s, 95% of all the archival boxing film in existence. Um, they also managed uh, a couple of uh, championship fighters besides Wilfred Benitez, and they had an arrangement. Uh, they were business associates and friends of Customato, who was a Bronx native who himself had been the manager of heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson and light heavyweight champion Jose Torres, who became New York State uh, Athletic uh, Boxing Commissioner. Well, Cus was a cagey self-promoter who created a, built up a legend around himself. Apparently, he used to tell people that when he had Floyd Patterson, the mob was trying to take control of Patterson's contract, and he fought them off by living on the fourth floor of a walk-up on 14th Street in the Gramercy Gym and sleeping on the floor and taking cold showers and eating only food that was brought in for him by, by kindly friends, and he would sleep with a loaded shotgun. And eventually the mob got tired and Cuss won the war of attrition and they left him alone with Floyd Patterson. Well, that was a bunch of malarkey, like a lot of the things that he said. And um, truth of the matter was, Cuss had a silent partner, a guy named Joe Black, who was a cousin of Fat Tony Salerno, who was the gambling chief of the Genovese crime family. And Joe Black ran interference for Cuss. Nobody came around to take Cuss's contract because it was already associated with Joe Black and Fat Tony Salerno. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything that Cuss said. He didn't fight off the mob or anything else. Another story that he would give out was that fighters have very little responsibility in their success. Most of it is due to the managers. And that he, Cuss, was such a good manager and such a knowledgeable boxing expert and trainer that with the right specimen, he could take the right specimen in his only fight, guide him to a victory for the heavyweight championship, which was a bunch of crap. And Jack Newfield, the, the journalist for the New York Post, he summed up Cuss the best. He knew Cuss. And he said, well, Cuss, the motto was half crackpot and half genius. He said, you just had to know which part you were, which half you were talking to at any given time. Well, Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Caton were taken with Cuss, and they were in the boxing business, and they had people, and, and Cuss, they loved Cuss's street knowledge and, and his uh, streetwise jibber-jabber, and they, they, they bought into it. And they sponsored Cuss in his venture upstate. He had a house in Athens, New York. Uh, it was a big, big frame house where he lived with a woman, Camille, who was a lovely, lovely woman. And they housed about a dozen or so boxers up there, young young people. And he had a gym in Catskill, New York, which was right near Athens, New York, where he trained all of these guys. And among the people that he was training at the time were a young man named Kevin Rooney and Teddy Atlas. 
Kevin had gone up there as a young man from Staten Island because he was getting in trouble and his parents sent him up there. They thought it would be good for him. And Teddy, likewise, uh, was friends with, Ke uh, with Kevin. And Teddy was getting in trouble as a teenager. He had uh, violent tendencies. He was a rambunctious kid. And his parents thought it might be a good idea to go up there with Kevin and, 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 and Cuss and get him out of the city and uh, it would be a nice, clean environment in the country and he could channel his energies into, into something constructive. Okay, well, he did. And he actually, Kevin and Teddy, thrived in, in Cuss's place, which was, again, uh, lock, stock, and barrel bought and supported by Jimmy Jacobs and uh, Bill Caton, who were Cuss's full partners. Well, one of the guys who was a sort of an alumnus of Cuss's uh, place was uh, became a corrections officer, and he was in the youth house when there was some boxing going on, and he boxed. He had been an amateur, and he boxed with a young 12-year-old. Now, this guy was 29 years old. He got in the ring with this 12-year-old, and the 12-year-old manhandled him and was throwing him around like a rag doll in the ring and was super strong. He was like a man-child. He was a 12-year-old kid. And he was Mike Tyson. So the guy called Cuss. He said, Cuss, I have a kid here you got to see. Cuss said, sure. He says, I can get him out. I'll bring him over to the gym. You want to take a look? So he brought Mike, a 12-year-old Mike, to the gym. And Cuss saw him and recognized right away a super strong specimen. This kid was a man. He was a man-child. He was, he was super strong. And he thought, well, we can do something. Cuss, being as cagey as he always was, immediately wangled custody of Mike and Mike became a resident of the house and Teddy who had been a promising amateur boxer became his trainer Tra Teddy was now a trainer because Teddy although he was an accomplished fighter had gotten in a terrible car accident and had injured himself and hurt his back and he had scoliosis and he couldn't really box anymore and Cuss recognizing Teddy's uh, superior intelligence thought that Teddy would be a terrific trainer, and he was right. Teddy worked with Cuss for years and became an excellent trainer in his own right. So when Mike came, Teddy was now training fighters, and Teddy was running all of these young people to tournaments and everything else, and he had 12-year-old Mike Tyson under his tutelage, and he trained him. And very slowly and very surely, under Cuss's guidance, you know, to, to some extent, but Cuss at that point in time was very elderly, and he had so much trust in Teddy's ability. Teddy Teddy was taking Mike to tournaments and they would carefully select his opposition to build up his confidence. And it got to the point where he succeeded to such an extent that Mike Tyson was now the terror of the amateur heavyweight boxing world. He was really good and he was really beating everybody uh, decisively. No, no problem. Cuss became so confident he never even went to the gym. Teddy would beg him and say, Cuss, come and see what I taught Mike and what he's doing now. He's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing this. And Cuss would say, well, Teddy, Camille is making uh, such and such tonight for dinner and we're going to have meatballs and I don't want to miss the meatballs. And there's a very good rerun on MASH tonight and I'm going to see that. And Cuss would never even go to the gym. And Cuss always took credit for training Tyson, but he actually trained Teddy and Teddy trained Tyson and Teddy alone. And he carted him all over the place for fights and worked the corner and he did very, very well. Well, things were going along, and Mike would have gone to the Olympics, except the Olympic Committee has a rule that wherever the fighter comes to him, have to give up 
their own trainer from wherever they come from and, and come under the training ages of the Olympic trainers. So they get all the glory for kids that somebody else developed. Well, Cus wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to let that kid go to anybody else. And as a matter of fact, Tyson was getting older now and is on the verge of turning pro. There was some debate over whether he was 18 or 19. They claimed he was the youngest heavyweight champion of the world at 18 years old. But the story is in some circles that they, they, they hit a year off his birth certificate. Tyson had come from Brownsville, New York, and a uh, nasty neighborhood that produced Murder Incorporated in the old days. And he was a street tough kid. He was, he was a problem. But basically, he towed the line. He found something constructive and a good outlet for his tendencies. And um, he was succeeding very, very well. He was on the verge of turning pro and Cuss being, once again, a canny piece of work, wangled the courts up there in Catskill and, and, and I guess it's Sullivan County, I'm not sure, to name him as Mike Tyson's guardian, therefore making him <laughs> the guy who would consent <laughs> to Mike Tyson being managed by anybody else other than Gus. He locked it up. And they were ready to go. And things were looking pretty good. Tyson had behavioral problems. Again, he, he came from a bad background, and it's a sad story. And he had behavioral problems, and for the most part, they smoothed it out. Anytime there were bumps in the road, every time Mike got himself in trouble, Teddy, Kevin, Bill Caton, Jimmy Jacobs, or Cuss, or all of them combined would do something, step in, and, and straighten the situation out, which meant that there were no consequences. They protect Mike from the consequences, which later on in his life became a problem because he never faced consequences and he was getting away with, with bad behavior without consequences. But that showed itself up later on as is a public record of that. Anyway, Mike was just about ready to turn pro and on the verge of his pro career. Teddy had just gotten married and his new wife had a young sister his, his wife was very, very pretty, Helene, and, and her young sister was also a very, very pretty young uh, kid. She was just uh, maybe 12 years old or 13 years old. And she came home and told Teddy's wife, her sister, that Mike was following her around and harassing her and touching her improperly and, and, and wouldn't leave her alone. So Helene told Teddy, and Teddy told Mike, Mike, stop. Okay, that's my little sister-in-law, and she doesn't want your attention. She doesn't love you. She doesn't like you. She doesn't want you to be around her or anything else. Leave her alone. Okay, Teddy, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next day, same thing happens again. Teddy now, he is about it, and he's a little more pissed off than he was on the, the first incident. And he gets Mike aside and at the gym, and he said, Mike, I'm warning you now. Stop. I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to tell you again. I'm warning you. Stop. Don't do this. She wants nothing to do with you. Okay, Teddy. Okay, Teddy. Okay, Teddy. Well, it happened again. It's the next day or the day after the next day. The kid comes home in tears. Now Teddy has a bad temper and Teddy's flaming mad. And he takes Mike for a walk in the woods. And Teddy's got a pistol. And he tells Mike, I told you, and this is the last time I tell you. And he pointed the gun right near Tyson's head, and he pulled the trigger, not to shoot him in the head, but let the noise report go right off in his ear. He says, you touch that girl again, and I'm going to blow your fucking brains out. Tyson ran off into the woods for days, 
when he came back, when they found him, Teddy was no longer on the premises. Cuss had exiled him. I don't want you here anymore or anything. Well, so choices either between Teddy or, or, or Mike Tyson, the possible next heavyweight champion of the world, and Cuss's ticket back to the, uh, to, the, to the limelight. So Teddy went. Teddy never got the 5% of Mike Tyson's contract that he had always been promised over the years for training Mike. He never got it. He came to New York, and he had little money and a new wife, and he went back to Staten Island where he came from, and uh, I got him some work at Gleason's gym with a couple of trainers, with a couple of uh, managers, um, the best I could. And he was scraping by, and then I got him a gig as I got him hooked up uh, as the trainer of Twyla Thorpe, the famous uh, choreographer and dancer. He trained her for six weeks, and he Teddy said, "I wish we had a fighter that was as tough as her. There's nobody in the gym, nobody in Gleason's gym is as tough as Twyla Thorpe." He said, "She could be a champion, no problem." But anyway, uh, Teddy scraped along, and to his credit, he became prominent in the field, and he deserved it. He was really good, and he knew what he was doing. Uh, he ended up training, uh, by the dint of his own sweat equity, he trained heavyweight champion Michael Mora uh, to the title. And a young man named Tyrone Jackson, who was a lightweight. Uh, Tyrone was a delightful kid, uh, young, early 20s, nicknamed the Harlem Butcher. Not because he was vicious, but because he worked in a butcher shop as a teenager in Harlem, where he lived. And <laughs> Tyrone was the sweetest kid around. Um, uncharacteristically for a young black man of his age, he was a big Frank Sinatra fan. He loved Frank Sinatra. And Teddy, um, now this is years later, and Tyson's uh, path, his history, he's doing very, very well, and, you know, he's killing everybody. Teddy's out in Reno, Nevada, for a nationally televised championship fight involving Tyrone Jackson. And the referee for the fight is Mills Lane. Mills Lane is a little guy with a shaved head, short sleeve shirt, looked like Popeye. Had ears sticking out. He looked like Popeye the sailor, without the sailor hat or the pipe. And Mills Lane was also the district attorney of Reno, Nevada, who went on in later years to become a federal district judge, a U.S. district court judge in, in Nevada. And as is the custom in championship fights, the referee visits each dressing room separately. Uh, and talks to the fighter and, and the trainers and explains the rules and how he wants the rules enforced and how he wants the fight conducted. And he did that, and it was nice. And then he said to Teddy, Teddy, uh, could I have a word with you in private? And Teddy said, sure. And they walked away out of earshot. And Mills Lane said to Teddy, he said, you know, I've been waiting to meet you for years now. He said, I thought for sure here in Reno or in Vegas, I would come across you with some fighter somehow. I thought it'd be sooner than this, but I'm glad to meet you now. He said, and I want you to know, I know what happened between you and Tyson. And Teddy said, I gulped and, and, and swallowed hard. And I said, here's this guy. This is all in an instant. This guy's the district attorney. Of, of Reno, Nevada, and, and here I was, you know, putting a gun to Mike Tyson's head. He said, this all flashed by my brain. And the next thing out of Mills Lane mouth was, I had to pull the fucking trigger. Well, Teddy was relieved. 
And Mills went on to say, now, you in Nevada here in Reno or Vegas or anywhere in this state, and you need anything, or anything happens, you be sure to call me up and we'll straighten it out. And don't forget it. All right? And good luck tonight. Well, the rest is history. Tyrone went on. He won the fight. It was no problem. And Teddy was pleasantly surprised by Mills' reaction. He was, he was totally flabbergasted by it. And years later, Teddy was asked as a, as a commentator when he was working for ESPN to, to uh, predict the outcome of the big fight that night between title, heavyweight title fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. And Tyson had been terrorizing everybody up, up to that point. And Teddy said on television, well, Evander Holyfield is a real warrior. You have to carry him out of the ring to defeat him. He says, he's not going to quit. There's no quitting that guy at all. He's a warrior. He said, Mike, on the other hand, if he doesn't knock Holyfield out in the first or second round, Mike will figure out a way to get himself disqualified because he's not a warrior and he's not that tough. Sure enough, the rest is history. That was the night when Mike Tyson couldn't knock out Evander Holyfield and in the early, very early rounds, bit Holyfield's ear and got himself disqualified. It was, it was a very prescient thing by Terry, but who really knew Tyson better than anybody in the world. And Mike Tyson used to characterize himself as the baddest man on the planet. And there was a song by, a rap song. I'm not a big rap fan, but i never forget the song. It was very, very famous by Flavor Flav, and the title of that song was Don't Believe the Hype. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. Court is adjourned.